You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. Now hear the word of the Lord from Philippians 4. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ, who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings, and all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being with us, making some time. Uh, this is our last Sunday in the book of Philippians. We've been here for about 10 weeks, and next week, if you've been with us for a while and pay attention to the things we do as a church, some of it's intentional. There's a few happy accidents thrown in every so often. Most of it's intentional. Every August, we tend to slow down and do a series called State of the Communion, and that's where we just talk about how are we doing as a church, what, what was good in the last year, and what's coming this next coming year. And I don't know if y'all been paying attention uh, since, I would say since about January, so this year, it's been a little crazy. Amen? Amen. amen. I warned the first service that in the, within the next year, we're, we're going to become an amen church, uh, which means we'll be actually acting like we're here and we can hear each other and be present. And so that, just so you guys know, that was louder than the amen we got at the nine o'clock service. Um, amen. 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 And if you really want to get serious, my favorite is, well, so if someone says something good, you, you can say, well, or go ahead, or, you know, like those, those kinds of things. Uh, it has been a, a crazy year. And it's also Sojourn's 20th anniversary. So it's been 20 years, well, 19 years and about 50 weeks, 48 weeks, something like that, since Sojourn Community Church was founded in the highlands of Louisville. And we want to be able to kind of have a family conversation. Um, healthy families can celebrate what's gone before us, 
and they can also talk about what's been hard about our past. Healthy families talk about the good stuff and the bad stuff, and we want to be able to celebrate some of what Sojourn has done and what we've been able to accomplish and seen God do over the last 20 years, and also name some of the things that haven't been so good. And one of the desires we have moving forward, Lord willing, we get 20 more years, uh, is to be more of a boots-on-the-ground church. And what I mean by boots on the ground is where what we believe shows up in how we live. And that's not to say it hasn't been the case for the last 20 years, but we want to we wanna do more than just proclaim the gospel. We want to live as though the gospel were true and all of the power it has to reshape and transform the world around us. So we've extended our State of the Communion series a little bit, and we're calling it Family Matters. Uh, we have a bad picture. It didn't translate well um, to sepia. You remember the picture, right? So in your bulletin, you'll see a picture that is, is kind of like a classic family photo for the folks who've been at Sojourn for a long time. At our first building, after a service one day, we took a picture out in the parking lot where everybody was in the shape of a church. And it's a, it's a picture that's meant a lot to us. And so we want to talk about what does it actually mean that we're the family of God? We're kind of having kitchen conversations. You know, the most intimate, serious conversations in your family happen around the kitchen table. And so there'll be guests, but we're going to have a conversation around family matters. What does it specifically mean that we all matter as the family of God, especially all that we're facing right now? Uh, After that, we'll be back in our series in the Gospel of Matthew which has been kind of a two and a half year journey with some, you know, broken up smaller series throughout. And just as a heads up, you know, so we can all kind of emotionally prepare. Maybe some of you know what Matthew 19 and 20 talk about. But so through, through Family Matters and then into the Gospel of Matthew series we'll be doing, here's some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about race. Anybody had any conversations? You don't, don't raise your hand, just answer in your spirit. Anybody had any conversations about race recently? Um, Or words like justice. What is justice? What does it mean? I appreciate that. Thank you. What is justice? Uh, We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. We're going to talk about money. And, you know, let's just hit all of them. Anything, you know, what? And so, you know, we can't really control what's going on in Matthew because Matthew wrote that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and we planned that series two or three years ago. And so we're there. And so why would we talk about race? Why would we talk about justice? Why are we doing that? Well, again, I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody is talking about it. The world is talking about it. And uh, in case you're just now waking up or the coffee's just hitting, this is a church. And so we believe in God, and more specifically, we believe in the power and the authority of His revealed Word, which is the Bible. So when protesters are talking about something and when politicians are talking about something and pundits are talking about something, we're a church that says the Word of God gets the last word. Um, The Word of God is the one who gives us our opinions on these things. And as a family, there's some ways we've done a really good job of talking about these things and some ways we've done a really poor job of talking about these things. So we're going to gather around the kitchen table, as it were, and talk about this. God's Word gets final say in these matters, and we want to equip ourselves and each other as the church to be able to navigate these really complex and contentious issues. So we're going to talk through some family matters. Uh, If you are on our weekly newsletter that we send out every Wednesday after the service, you're going to get some homework 
for the next weeks, because it starts next week, and we want to get on the same page with some terms and give you guys some tools to journey through this, because there's, there's more than we can really cover, even in, even in six weeks. And it's, it's going to be simple things like, what does liberal politics mean versus liberal theology? If you're a liberal theologian, does that automatically mean you're a liberal whatever, politician, or if you're conservative, can you be conservative economically and liberal politically? What do these phrases mean? Because they don't mean the same thing everywhere else. And so we want to get kind of on the same page with some of these things. So be on the lookout for that as it's coming. And if you want to do that, if you want to, if you're visiting or whatever, if, if you want to see that, I guess, I don't know how to do that actually, Bobby, since we're not doing connect cards anymore. Send an email to newalbany at sojournchurch.com. Is that a fair solution? That sound Okay. Bobby likes that solution. Bobby's in charge here. If you guys are visiting, don't, don't let the show up here fool you. Don't let the shiny ball head fool you. Bobby's in charge. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but we'll be sending that out after. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, this is our, kind of our family service here. I'm a little terrified about it. We'll see how it goes. I don't particularly enjoy people being mad at me, which if you don't like that, I would recommend not going into the preaching business. Um, if you want to take it seriously, you know, like if you want to preach the Word of God, because if people People aren't always going to like it, and uh, that's uncomfortable for me. And, but we'll dive in and have a family conversation. Sometimes the best conversations are the hardest ones, and so that will start next week. Uh, speaking of fear and failure, I'm not particularly sure why it, it, it stirred me in, in this verse just yet, um, or this, this passage, but uh, I've, been, I've been thinking about parenting a lot lately. Uh, we're moving eventually. And uh, my kids are really afraid of that. Uh, they think, we've had to convince them over and over that when we move, they get to bring their stuff with them. Uh, they thought when you sell a house, you sell everything you own and we're starting over and they're worried about their Paw Patrol toys and their Pokemon cards and you know, things like that. But um, you know, I feel like parenting is often a game where you wonder if your successes will outweigh your failures. And if, if you don't have any kids, um, here's what I mean by that. Like, will the times that we played catch in the backyard outweigh the times that I lost my temper and yelled at them? Um, will the times that I gave them ice cream outweigh the times that I stayed late at work and missed the recital? And the, the truth is, I, no one really knows. It's, as far as I can tell, parenting isn't quite a scale game like that where you can just weigh it out. Uh, I, my kids are 6, 5, and 18 months, and I just often wonder how are they going to turn out and when they're in their 20s and in their 30s, as I look at them, who they are and how they're living, will I be able to tell which parts are my fault and which parts are their fault? You know, which parts are their decision-making that's gone sideways? Which parts are the ways that I, I shape them? Um, and to compound that, you, you know, uh, one of the hard things about preaching when you're there and not here, when you're listening is you can make assumptions about who the person preaching is, and we, we tend to have a, a way of idealizing that person or making them into some, something that maybe they're, they're really not. So you guys can feel like you know me, but you, you probably really don't know me. And one of the things that you should know about me is that I'm quite a handful. Uh, I'm incredibly emotional. I'm prone to high highs and low lows. I feel things deeply. I am a lot to handle. Uh, if you're close to me, you know that. My wife knows that better than anybody. And so when I think about my kids, so I know I'm a lot. I have an emotionally draining job that's often quite complicated, that has all of this spiritual baggage on top of it. 
and it's going to create all kinds of complexities for them. I find myself asking, wondering, like, ridiculous things, like, is my six-year-old a good enough Christian? Uh, is, is the church judging me for the behaviors of my six- and five-year-old? And I've, no one's ever told me that. I've just read stories about that happening to pastors' kids. And you can go read studies on how pastors' kids turn out, and they're not very encouraging if you want to go be a vocational pastor. The, the stories are generally, generally not very positive. Uh, and so, you know, I worry about that. And um, I was joking with a friend recently who he and his wife had been struggling with infertility for a while, and they finally got to bring home their first kid and just had all of these emotions. And when he was still in the hospital, I texted him and I said, make sure to ask the nurse for the owner's manual before you leave, uh, which if you don't have kids, I will tell you, there is no owner's manual for children. There, it's amazing. Uh, when you have a child in a hospital then you just go home afterwards with a human, an entire human being. And it's basically like, keep it alive, good luck. See you in therapy in 20 years. You know, I mean, that's, that's just kind of how... So when I think about children and parenting, there's just so much pressure. And I feel it particularly because of the job that I have and the mess that I am. Uh, so much pressure, so much expectation, and so much mystery. Nobody has yet to write the book. That's like, here are the five ways to make sure your kids turn out great. A few, so I've been wrestling with that for eight or nine years, how to be a good parent. And a, a few years back, I read a book, a memoir by this guy named Ian Morgan Cron. Uh, the memoir, and if, for nothing else, to figure out what this title is about, the title is enough to make you want to read it. The title is called Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me a memoir of sorts. And it's, it's his life story wrestling with an alcoholic absentee father, his journey to faith. And maybe you're wondering, why is the CIA in there? Read and find out. Um, and so he's, he's got a paragraph that I think of often from that book. And so he writes, a young boy needs a father who tells him that life is a loner who helps him discover why God sent him to this troubled earth so he doesn't die without having tried to make it better. Most of all, a boy needs to be able to look into his father's eyes and see admiration and delight. Boys without fathers or boys with fathers who for whatever reason kept, keep their love undisclosed begin life without a center of gravity. They float like astronauts in space, hoping to find ballast in a patch of earth where they can plant their feet and make a life. Many of us who live without these gifts that only a father can bestow go through life banging from guardrail to guardrail, trying to determine why our fathers kept their love nameless, as if ashamed. So for 10 weeks now, we've been talking about suffering through the book of Philippians. Uh, and I would say there's been a specific kind of suffering that we've talked about. We've talked about the pandemic kind of suffering and the ensuing economic kind of suffering, all legitimate, all worthy of our attention. I think there's often a deeper wound that all of us carry that Ian is getting at here. And I think it applies if you're a woman or a man, if you're a son or a daughter. I think part of what being human in a broken world means, part of what being a child means, is a striving to know whether or not we're loved whether or not, and it goes, it goes further than that. Am I wanted here? Am I desired here? Is there purpose for me here? 
And in that line where he talks about fathers who keep their love undisclosed, that line haunts me. Through my vocational life, I've come to learn and believe that fathers who keep their love a secret do great harm to their children. And it often leads to a lifetime of suffering and striving in the life of the child. So, in our home, amidst the mystery and the pressure and the concerns of how to do this right, family devotionals, don't do family devotionals. Which devotional should you read? Should you do a child, children's Bible study or the King James or, you know, family work? What? We've made it our aim at our home for our children to know that they are gifts to us, that they are loved and that we want them in our family. So real practically, I don't know why this, I just feel like so weepy right now. I've got all these unexpected tears happening today. Um, so several times a week, I'll say to one of my children, I've got three of them, I'll say to one of them, I have a secret for you. It's just for you. And they get all excited. They don't, in full disclosure, they don't really get excited anymore because this has been happening for years now. And so they kind of roll their eyes and be like, I know what you're going to say. And I'm like, no, you don't. Come here. I have a secret for you. And so, you know, my son or my daughter will scurry over and they'll hop up onto my lap and I'll say, it's just for you. No one else can hear it. And they'll lean their ear forward right against my, my mouth and I'll whisper to them, I love you with my whole The reason I tell you that is because I believe with everything in me that your true Father in heaven is doing that for you this morning. I know of so many dads who kept their love a secret or who for any number of reasons were unable to disclose the truth of their love, which can make Ideas like what I'm sharing with you now, very difficult to believe. And I want you to know your Father in Heaven is not that way. Your Father in Heaven is generous with His secrets. And so today we get to see the secret that's at the heart of the book of Philippians. Really, it's at the heart of the Bible. It's at the heart of God. It's at the heart of our whole lives. It's the most powerful of all secrets. Paul begins teasing it in verse 12. He says, I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. He says, I know a secret that gives you power so that if you get what you want and if you don't get what you want, you'll still be okay. It's a secret that can carry you through whatever life throws at you, whether your circumstances change or they don't, whether the pandemic subsides or it doesn't, whether the economy recovers or it doesn't. So the broader context of that verse, he says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything, a lot or a little. I don't have, we don't have the time, and I really feel like there's just one thing I want to say to you this morning. Um, so if you want to know more about this, you can send me an email. I can point you in the right direction. Paul is doing something very clever here. He's reflecting on the 10th commandment. Um, remember the top 10, the 10 commandments? 
Anybody remember what the 10th commandment says? Don't covet. Man, the pastor, you can't hop in, pastor. You got to let the people wrestle with it. Pastor Stephen with the Bible answer from the back row. Okay. Uh, yeah, the 10th commandment is you shall not covet. You won't hunger after the stuff your neighbor has. You won't wish you had what someone else has. Uh, and if you, if you look into the conversion of Paul, the 10th commandment was instrumental in his conversion to Christ and his early discipleship, his growth in the faith. Now, coveting isn't something we talk about a lot in our culture. Uh, I don't imagine someone's looked at you recently and said, like, stop coveting me, bro. Or, you know, like, that's, that's not something we really talk about anymore. Uh, coveting, what the 10th commandment is getting at, that kind of coveting is when you look at something and you, you in essence, in your soul say, I am empty without that. I am nothing if I don't have that. I, I must there is no option to not have that. Could be an object or a circumstance that you just have this longing. If only this would happen, then I would know. My life is fulfilled. My dreams are complete. Well, if you want a, a quick excursus on the 10th commandment, the Bible says don't do that. <laughs> ah, that's so funny to me. Uh, and Paul is saying, I don't do that. Because he's learned a secret. Because it's a secret, it means it's not entirely obvious. And, you know, if you're wrestling with disordered desires, perhaps, or something that you really want, you know you can't just turn off desire. There's no desire switch in your soul that you just flip it, and you're like, oh, that's over with. The only way to deal with the desire is to satisfy it. And in that, in that way, the 10th commandment tells us that that hunger, that unnamed longing, will not, will not be satisfied with stuff. That itch to know, am I loved? Do I belong? Am I wanted? Circumstances, stuff will not satisfy that. In that way, the 10th commandment is, is kind of a warning, but it's also a promise. It's a warning that all of this stuff won't work. And may we be a people who actually believe that. How many celebrities need to destroy their life? How many of the rich and famous need to destroy their lives in that endless pursuit for more for us to believe that the wealth, the circumstance, the stuff won't satisfy? So it's a warning that your stuff won't work. And it's a, it's a promise of what might happen if you keep the first commandment. So and the first commandment is a little bit easier. What's the first commandment, somebody? You can, you can summarize it in two words. Pastor saved y'all butts again. Love God. That's the first commandment. Love God. And, and in some ways, I'm not trying to get rid of eight of the ten commandments right now, but if you get the first commandment right, you will get the tenth commandment right. And if you have the bookends right, if you have the first and the tenth right, everything in the middle will take care of itself. As, here, here's what I mean. So if you, if you love God, and that makes you the kind of person that says, I have enough, then let's just think about a couple of them. Fourth commandment, uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, that means you'll take a day off. Why can you take a day off? Well, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to strive. You can lay down your addiction to busyness. Why? Well, because I love God and I have enough. So I don't need to do that. You're probably not going to kill people. Why? Because I have enough. I, what reason would I have to, 
to hurt somebody else or try to take something. You won't steal. You won't commit adultery. You won't look at things on the internet. You're not supposed to look at. Why? Because I love God and I have enough. You see what I'm saying? If you get the first and the tenth down, everything else will take, take care of itself. Strivings will cease. Paul's saying, I've grown to be content whether I'm rich or poor, whether I've got plenty or very little, because he has learned a secret. And here is the secret. Verse 13. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You need to remember, that's a famous verse for good reason, but you have to remember this verse comes at the end of a book on suffering, on joy in the midst of adverse circumstances. Paul is saying this while he's literally chained to another human being. This isn't a verse that says, I know you're 5'3", but Christ will let you be in the NBA one day. You know, we... We put it on our eye black or you tattoo it and think that you can't carry a tune in a bucket, but Philippians 4.13, I'm going to win American Idol. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying Christ gives you the superpower to do anything. This is not about achieving whatever you set your heart on. It's about remaining filled with joy, confident that you are loved and belong that your life matters, and that all will be well, even when your dreams fail. Later in this chapter, Paul will give us an idea of what kind of confidence this produces. In verse 19, he says, This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. When, you, when, when Jesus is enough for you, you know that you will have enough. You know you have a Father who loves you, and he will supply all of your needs. Paul is saying he knows the secret to fulfilling the first and the tenth commandment. It's that Christ gives him strength. This is what I mean by a boots-on-the-ground church. We don't just profess a truth. He actually has real strength that changes the way he lives. It changes the way he faces circumstances. Jesus is with him. His Father will provide for him. There's a way of loving God that grants you strength despite your circumstances. And for many of us, it remains a secret, not because your father has kept his love undisclosed, but because we have found receiving his love so foreign and so difficult. We resist it. So, let me tell you the secret of the Christian life. I mean, this is what it all comes down to. This is the key to making your life run, to experiencing joy, to having stability. God loves you. And morning after morning, day after day, night after night, he's whispering in your ear, I love you with my whole heart. Many of us find clever ways of keeping that at arm's length. We find clever ways of convincing ourselves we're not lovable. And so we resist it. Or we give ourselves over to studying the love of God rather than experiencing the love of God. And I just want to give you two real simple ways you can start talking to yourselves and each other. When that, you know, when I tell somebody God loves them, one of the first responses will be something like, well, how could you possibly say that? And I don't need to know much about you to know that he loves you. First, simply, 
One of the simplest ways I know that he loves you is because he made you. And you need to know he didn't have to make you. God didn't need you. He didn't need a universe. He was perfectly content within himself. He just got real excited and he wanted to make you. And this isn't a perfect analogy that I'm about to share with you, but I think it, I think it communicates the point well. So let me, let me ask you, or you consider, we can do crowd participation if you want. Um, have you ever literally needed ice cream? I know you felt like, oh, I could, oh man, I need some ice cream right now. But we had a doctor in the last service, and I asked if she'd ever prescribed somebody ice cream as a life-saving treatment. She said, no, never, right? Of course not. You have never, need actually means something, just like literally means something, you know, let the reader understand. You have never needed ice cream. So why did you buy that ice cream? Anybody willing to share? Why did you buy ice cream the last time you bought it? Yeah. Somebody wanted it. Whether it was you or someone you love with your whole heart, right? Why does anybody eat ice cream? Why do you go to the ice cream parlor your first night of vacation? Well, if you've never eaten ice cream, I will tell you. It is just entirely delicious. When you eat it, no one has ever been sad eating ice cream. That's why when you're really sad, you eat ice cream because it gives you a break for a few minutes and then you get more sad afterwards because you ate the ice cream and then you feel fat. And Maybe that's me, is that just me? That's me. So that's what I'm saying, don't push the analogy too far. You bought that ice cream because it's wonderful and you wanted it. And so to think about this other way, you are God's ice cream. He didn't need you, but boy, did he want you. And so he made you, and he's pursued you. He delights in you. That's why he made you. I know God loves you because he made you. And then the response to that will typically be, but you don't know what I've done. To which the honest answer is correct. (laughs) I don't really know what you've done with your life. Uh, I can make some guesses based on what you've told me, but you're correct. But frankly, I don't really need to know what you've done with your life. Uh, to know that God loves you. I'll give just one quick example. The, the Bible is filled with this. Romans 5. God showed his great, someone say it? Love. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So listen, real quick. Lots of stuff happened at the cross of Christ. And millions of pages have been written talking about what that happens. One of the ways we resist receiving God's love is by becoming students of his love rather than participants in his love. And so we will talk about the justice of God and the wrath of God, and we'll argue about predestination or all of these like worthy, important theological concepts when, as a way of just saying, what must that mean? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Was he motivated by his glory? Yes. Was he motivated by his justice? Yes. Or all these other, yes. But it was his love that he was predominantly showing to us at the cross. He didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for you to get your life under control and all sorted out so that you could come to him in whatever holiness you think you need. He showed his love for you that while you were still a sinner, Christ came and died for you. He did not wait for you. He ran to you. He came and lived for you and died for you and was raised for you. Why? Because of his great love for you. The voice of your father is constantly whispering his love to you. 
And from the cross and empty tomb of Christ, he is shouting his love for you. When you hear the Father whisper his love to you, oh, the strength that you will find there. The solid ground, firm through everything life can throw at you, filling you with patient hope that soon you will be home. The secret to the Christian life is simply this. Jesus is with you because God loves you. His presence is in you, before you, behind you, all around you. The secret of the Christian life is that rooted and grounded in the presence of Christ, you can endure all things. So whatever you're setting out to do in your life, I plead with you, make it your aim to experience the presence of Jesus. Learn to love God and become content by experiencing the real presence of Christ. Hearing the voice of your Father's love. There's so many ways to do this, but, but what, if, what if we started defining the goal of our lives as less doing something for God as much as it was relating to God in a certain way? And think about this with me for a minute. Some of us need to get quiet and really start listening for the voice of God. Maybe you've been praying for 20 years, but you've never been quiet Can you imagine, how well would you know somebody if you talked to them for 20 years but never listened to what they had to say? How well would you know that person? Some of you need to get quiet and just say, Dad, tell me you love me. I need to hear it. And then let him speak. Some of you need to start looking at the good things in your life and receive them as gifts from your Father who loves you. And it could be something small. It's one reason I drink coffee every day, 80% of the days, because For a couple of bucks, you can get coffee from the other side of the world that tastes delicious. And I remind myself, this was a plant made by God that grew some fruit that somebody picked. They pulled out the seed, they cooked it, and then they ground it, and then they poured. It's an utter mystery, and what a miracle. And I can receive something small and ordinary as a reminder that God loves me and cares for me. He gave me taste buds to taste it. Some of you need to start refocusing your vision on the good, true, beautiful things in your life as evidence of God's nearness to you. Some of you need to obey him and find his promises fulfilled as you build his kingdom. Get real practical. Love your enemies. Pray for those who speak evil against you. Paul ends this entire thing by saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Listen to... Grace, that's what the presence of Jesus will give to you, knowing you are loved because God made you and desires to be with you, that you cannot earn this or achieve this. No matter what happens in your life, nothing can shake that concrete reality. The only voice in the universe that matters a bit looks at you and says, this is my daughter and I love her with my whole heart. It looks at you and says, this is my son and he means the world to me. Can you imagine what you would do with your life or your time if you believed that God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, looked at you and said, I love you with my whole heart? Do you think you would just sit at home and wait for Jesus to come back? Do you think you would just give yourself over to endless Bible study and speculation? What might we do if that was real for us? What might happen in this city, in our homes, with our relationships. Can you imagine the joy that we would have? Delight in the beauty of God, patient hope, strength for today, hope for tomorrow. 
So of everything that we've covered in the book of Philippians, the one thing that you need to hear is God loves you with his whole heart. So make it your aim, not just to know that, but to hear his voice and experience that love. And communion is our weekly opportunity to rehearse that truth in an experiential way, not just reciting information, but we're invited to participate in the mystery of God's love. It's, it's our opportunity to crawl into our Father's lap and hear him whispering his love to us over and over and over again. And so we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it, and then he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. What does this mean? Am I loved by God? Is the body of Christ still given for you? And is the blood of Christ still shed for you? The only way you can be removed from the family of God is if we uncrucify and unresurrect Christ. And since that can't happen, it means you are safe and you are loved. And I invite you, as, as we take these elements, receive them as delight in your Father's eyes. Some of you need to experience in a fresh new way that God loves you. And thanks be to God, he's given us something so concrete and tangible to remember this. So I invite you to take the wafer. If you don't have one, there's some in the back and there's some in the tables out in the lobby you can grab. But look at this, and maybe even just in your imagination, try to picture what this means, that Christ gave his body for you. Receive this as God's passionate desire and pursuit of you, and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Take and eat. He sealed his love for you with the blood of his son. So take a moment and consider, how precious is your blood to you? How precious is the blood of one of your children to you? So how precious must you be to your Father in heaven? Receive this as evidence of his love for you. Take, drink, and remember the blood of Christ was shed for you. We receive the love of God, and we respond by giving him our lives and our love. And so in a few moments, I'll pray for us, and then we will stand and sing. And on your way out, if you'd like, you can leave an offering in the boxes as we go. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.